You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. We want you to be in the Word of God here this morning, and so if you uh, would you grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be beginning our Our uh, sermon here this morning, we've already been in here for a little bit, but now we're going to be turning to uh, the blessing and the curse of the fall. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to bring you one. Just slide your hand up. The ushers love to bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is our gift to you to have God's very sufficient word in your hands as he has spoken it directly to his people. Well, if you've been on a freeway or a highway that is all of a sudden just kind of slowed down to a crawl for miles and miles. Well, more often than not, what you're gonna find is that there was some kind of an accident, there was some kind of an incident up ahead that is causing all these people to slow down, and then as it goes by human nature, as we're going by, all of us are gawking at the accident, taking a look at the scene of, of what went wrong, right? People are wondering, um, after that traffic has been so jammed up, what in the world just happened here that could have caused such a mess? And as they go by that scene of the accident, they try to take a glimpse of the source of the problem. Well, as we get to Genesis chapter 3 here today, it's, it's like we're returning to the scene of an incident, the greatest incident ever. In fact, better said, it's like we're returning to the scene of a crime, um, as God has been revealing our very beginnings um, of, uh, throughout Genesis, all through chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've witnessed his miraculous creation, right? The beauty of creation, the power of God through his creation, the wonder of creation, how he created all of this whole universe, and he's created everything that fills the universe, and he's created us, and how that is so worthy of our praise and awe, and then how through that everything was good, in fact, As he created man and woman, it was what? It was very good. But now as we crest into chapter 3, we see God taking us back to where everything went south. We see him taking us back to the scene of the greatest incident, the greatest crime ever. And we get to peek behind the scenes to look again at the evidence and the details and to see the root cause of what went wrong. Why our world is the way that it is, why we are the way that we are, and what is being revealed about God's plan to fix it. Well, as last week we examined the very first sin ever committed, we witnessed the power of deception when met by evil whispers and a listening ear and a willing heart, as we witnessed the tactics of temptation used by Satan, in the very beginning, we were essentially schooled on temptation 101, right? That through our study, through the temptation of Eve, we witnessed that number one, temptation questions the very word of God, that temptation doubts the very integrity of God, that temptation targets the very desires of the heart, and then fourthly and so tragically that when temptation is embraced, sin is tragically conceived. Or as James 1.5 says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Friends, we didn't even last one generation. Right? We, we had it all. Adam and Eve had absolutely everything they could ever want or need. They were humanity in the perfect. They were naked and not ashamed. No sin. Nothing but pure, innocent bliss. And they were doing it all in the, in the very personal presence of God forever. Right? That was the design. That was the plan. But yet within just a few crafty, deceitful whispers from the serpent aimed directly towards a willing human heart, all of a sudden we wanted more. <clears throat> we wanted to be like God. And so what we witnessed was they saw, they took, they ate, they sinned. And as we left Adam and Eve both last Sunday in verse 8 with eyes wide open and their shame, they were covering themselves and, and then they were evading the presence of the Lord, hiding in the trees. What we're going to witness today is how God reacted to their sin. We're also going to witness how God ultimately responded to their cosmic treason against him, which is then going to teach us how God responds to our sin, how he responds to our transgression. And friends, what we're going to discover in this tragedy of tragedies, in this fallout of fallouts, that as yes, there has never been a darker day than that day, that as yes, there has never been a more sorrowful day to grieve and mourn like no other day, that Yes, amongst all the judgment and separation and cursing, there is also such rich blessing and abundant mercy and grace and a future hope of redemption. Well, let's read Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Genesis 3, verses 9 to 20. Actually, we're going to be in verse 8 to 20. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And we're going to stop there because we have a lot uh, to be looking at here in the text today. In fact, we're only going to go through about half of that here today. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. That as you dwelt with your people in the garden from the very beginning, you now tabernacle with us by your Holy Spirit, by the Comforter, by the one who illuminates your word to us, who convicts us of sin, judgment, and death. Lord, we thank you that your word is before us, that you did not leave us uh, alone in the darkness, but that you shone the light of Jesus Christ, the gospel of your Son to us through your holy word, and that through that we can have life and we can have life everlasting found in him, with him forever. Lord, we pray as we approach your word this morning that you would give us willing ears to hear, eyes to see the glory of Christ, hearts to receive by faith what you have for us, and that you would produce that faith and you would renew us and transform us into the image of your Son further here this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you and I approach this tragic text here this morning, we need to approach it with a sense of parentage in mind. right? That as we are always a product of our parentage, what we see here in Adam and Eve's response to their sin is also what we so readily see within Ourself, as evidenced in how we respond to sin. That how our first parents responded is also how we tend to respond to sin as well. Right? As, as they evaded, we tend to evade. As they deflect, we tend to deflect. And as they conceal, so we naturally conceal because that is our nature. Right? As, as their children, we are just like them in our, in our natural selves. And we all share the same sin gene together. But then with this theme of parentage, let us also remember that we have an ultimate and true parent in God himself. And our true father, our creator that we've been learning about through the book of Genesis so far. The one who made us and who loves us and who is deemed to transform us and conform us to his image And so the greater question is, is how does God, our Father, respond to our sin? How does he react to such a direct attack against his very goodness and his holiness, such a blatant rejection of his perfect plan and will? And so as you think about that, as Adam and Eve sinned, and then you think about how you sin, when you think about Adam and Eve and God's response, does he just kind of storm around the garden and in such fierce anger, you know, looking to smite Adam and Eve immediately? Right? Does, does he turn his back on his creation in his wrath and say, right, you're, you're on your own, you didn't want me, you're left to your own? Or does he just kind of burn it all down and start again as if this was all one big mistake? Or is his response love, grace, and mercy in the judgment. Well, let's take a closer look at verse 9. Verses 9 to 13. And we're going to see first that, you know, as we so fearfully evade, 
God so faithfully pursues. Verse 9 says, But the Lord God, remember when you see Lord God, we've got Yahweh, Elohim, right? The covenant-keeping creator. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So remember, just before in verses 7 to 8, it says that after they ate of the fruit, their eyes were opened and they, they now knew that they were naked. And so in the, in the newfound sinful shame of this nakedness that they see together, they try to sew fig leaves together and they try to cover themselves up in their shame. Right? They were hiding themselves from each other and then we see them trying to hide themselves from God. And then they hear the sound of God walking in the garden and they hid themselves from his presence amongst the trees. And so just picture these two in shock, right? They're in a bit of a spiritual whiplash, right? New dark thoughts have now careened into their minds about each other and about God and all that they can just so clearly and boldly remember amidst, amidst all the chaos and the fog of sin in that moment would have been the very words of God that said, you will surely die. You will surely die. And then they hear the one who said those words calling out to them. They hear him, they hear him walking, calling out to the man, calling out to Adam, where are you? Just imagine the fear. Now as they have tasted sin and they've tasted this shame, they now know the depths of Satan's lies. And as they remember how God told them that they would surely die, all that would be left would just be sheer terror. You know, God's going to kill us. And that's exactly what we see here in Adam's response in verse 10. It says, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now notice, he doesn't immediately fess up to the sin here. No, he just starts out by saying what he's feeling. I was afraid, right? Fear. He never experienced fear before. And right now, all of a sudden, he's afraid of God. And then he says the reason that he was afraid, or, or the reason that he wants to confess in that moment, is, that, is this fact that he's now naked. He confesses the fact that he's now naked, like almost to the point of, of it kind of being some, somewhat of an accident or, or something that happened to him. Right? There doesn't seem to be much ownership going on here. Like all of a sudden, I've just found myself naked, and so now I'm afraid of you, God, because of that, right? Like a child hiding under his bed or, you know, after they get caught in your makeup or your paint and they cover themselves with that. And then they're hiding under the bed and then you discover them and, and they just act like, I don't know what you're talking about. And how that paint and that makeup is all over them. Now as God is omniscient, as God is all-knowing, as he sees it all, as he hears everything, as God is aware of everything at all times, all at once, his asking Adam, where are you, this isn't an acknowledgement of God's unawareness of what has happened. No, God would have been fully aware, right, of every tempting whisper, every thought, every desire within that original temptation and sin, right? This doesn't catch God off guard. 
as even in eternity past, in his divine foreknowledge, he knew that this was coming, but yet he asks anyways, he asks Adam, where are you? And why did he do that? In order to give him the opportunity to come clean. But yet Adam, in his newfound sinful state, he doesn't take this opportunity to quickly confess, but rather he acts as if he has no clue. To which God then replies, he said, who told you that you were naked? Right, as they previously didn't have any knowledge of nakedness as being something that should be covered up, they would have had to have learned this knowledge from some kind of an outside source, right? And we know that they learned that from their sin as they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they also knew that uh, through the temptations of the serpent, it was his temptation that, that led to this knowledge when they ate of the fruit. And now that their eyes are opened, we see God giving Adam a chance to confess. And then we see again him giving him another chance to confess and come clean by saying to him more directly, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right, this is just a direct, pointed question that could have been answered very simply. Yes, God, I ate. God, I am sorry. But yes, as Adam determines to evade all responsibility at all cost, in knowing that he is now caught, we see him now beginning to shift the blame. And what we see here first is that he blames it on his wife. And then he blames it on God. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Like, God, I only ate because of that woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And even more so, God, it's your fault because you gave her to me. This gift, this, this helper that you gave to me didn't help me. It's all her fault. It is, isn't that what we naturally do in our sin when we get caught? Right? We don't want to fess up. We don't want to own our responsibility. It's like when I was 14 years old and my parents found a pack of cigarettes in my pocket. Right? Oh yeah, no, that's, that's a guy from school. I'm just holding those cigarettes for him in my pocket. Right? It wasn't an immediate confession, that's for sure. We are excellent blame shifters, aren't we? We so quickly want to evade all responsibility when we're caught. And so instead of owning our sin, in his fear of God, Adam tries to pass the buck. And so God, kind of, kind of playing along with Adam's sin logic here, then turns to Eve and says to her, what is this that you have done? Right? Maybe the woman is going to fess up. Maybe she is going to quickly own it and truly confess. Maybe she has more integrity than the man that I created. But instead, the woman does the exact same thing. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Which, in a sense, is very true, right? Eve was deceived. But what she's leaving out here is the fact of responsibility. She's leaving out her responsibility in the deception She's leaving out that she willingly listened to uh, the serpent's twisted words, 
that she allowed that question, right? Did God really say? She allowed that to cause her to question the very goodness of God, the motivations of God. She allowed all of this to override the truth and to believe the lie that you will surely not die from Satan, right? She, she very cleverly left all of this out. And so as, as we see Adam pointing the finger to her, she's now turning around and she's pointing the finger at the serpent. Everybody's pointing fingers everywhere else but themselves. Well, friends, if you've ever wondered how you can be so quick to blame others, our very first parents set the standard for us that this is what they so readily did and that this is what we so naturally do. That when we get caught in sin, we're so quick to point the finger at somebody else. Right? We blame each other. We blame Satan. And we can even so boldly blame God. God, why did you make me this way? God, why did you make the world so tempting? Or the devil made me do it. And the last person we want to blame is ourselves. Right? Not that we don't know that it was us, but that we don't want to be held accountable. And so out of fear, we just cover it up, we hide, and when we're found out, we so often evade our responsibility. And so what does God do about it? How does he respond? How does he respond to you when you're caught in your sin? Well, as we know, there are massive repercussions for this heinous crime against God, as we're going to study in the next section as we're initially thinking about how God responds to sin here, I want you to look first back at verse 9 again. Because verse 9 gives us some very surprising insight into God's knee-jerk reaction to our sin. That as God knew full well what Adam and Eve did, the moment that they did it, and even before so in eternity past, right, as God is omniscient, as he's all-knowing, as he doesn't need to learn anything or be told anything, by all of his divine knowledge, he knows every detail of that betrayal. What we don't see in the response of God here is him coming along and killing them instantly. We don't see him turning his back on them or distancing himself from them. No, what do we see? What we see here, friends, is a God who lovingly searches them out, even in their sin. It's a God who is seeking him, seeking them, even in their hiding. A God who pursues, even in their fear and their shame and their evasion. This is a God who calls out to them in their attempts to isolate and deny. That as he says to them, where are you? He's really revealing his character to love and rescue them. This is God's knee-jerk reaction to our sin. Right? As we so fearfully evade, he so faithfully pursues. Because why? Because that's who he is. That's a part of his eternal character that up to this point has not been yet revealed. Without the fallout of sin, Adam and Eve uh, were not going astray, right? So pursuit of them was not necessary. Without sin, Adam and Eve were not ashamed and afraid. They were not trying to hide. So God seeking to rescue anything wasn't even a thing yet until it happened. 
Friends, it wasn't until sin came into the world that God's pursuing, redeeming grace and his mercy were ignited. But now, under God's sovereign allowance, now that sin and shame have come in to infect all humanity, God now faithfully pursues. God now faithfully seeks. And God faithfully loves to do this. He's all about this. So friends, in your sin, you may feel as though you've so disappointed God that he wants nothing to do with you. That you are so bad that you are out of his reach. But the reality is that it's actually quite the opposite. That it's precisely because of our sin that God pursues us. That yes, even though our sin does disappoint God gravely, yes, it is a capital offense. It is worthy of eternal death. Friends, God knows that better than you do. And still, he calls out to you. Still, he seeks you out. And he says, where are you? So that you would realize what you have done. So that you would respond in true confession and repentance and faith. Friends, our God is a seeking God. Right as Ezekiel the prophet says in Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Right? He seeks his own. It's not about you cleaning yourself up first. It's not about you trying to cover up your shame. No, it's about him calling out to those who need to be rescued. Matthew 9, 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus loves to save sinners. And so friends, as much as we, like Adam and Eve, want to run and cover and hide from God, God so urgently seeks us out. Even when we're not seeking him. In fact, the scriptures say what? We don't seek him. Right? Romans 3, 11 to 12. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Right? The moment Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't run to God to confess Lord, look what we did. No, they ran to hide. They ran for cover. And the first chance that God has to exercise this incredible part of his eternal divine character, what we see right here is that he goes for it. He goes after us. As the Puritans would call him the hound of heaven, this is a picture of a pursuing God. Where are you? So friends, as God continues to call us out, even to this day, even in our sin, let the very words of God, as he says, where are you, penetrate your heart. Let me ask you, where are you? Are you running from him? Are you hiding from him? Are you trying to cover yourself up? Are you ashamed and afraid before a holy God? 
Are you afraid of this God who, who sees every sin that you commit, who knows every thought that you think? That you can't hide from him? Right? I can't stand before him. I've got to hide. I've got to get away from him. And then when you get caught in your sin, when you're confronted by God, when you're confronted by his word, do you respond by squirming or denying or then blame shifting out of fear of him? Friends, how quickly you respond in confession and repentance reveals what you truly believe about God. You either believe that all he has is judgment and wrath for you, that he's nothing but angry, or you realize that even in his rightful justice, he knows you're a sinner, he knows you're going to fail the test, and just like Adam and Eve, he's going to pursue you even in your sin in order to rescue you from your sin and your shame and that he loves to do this. He loves it. So are you going to give up fighting against such a loving, pursuing God? Would you humble yourself before him today and from this day forward and own what you need to own before him. Confessing that, yes, I took God. I ate and I sinned against you. Or are you going to continue in the deception of Satan, right? I mean, listen to 1 John 1, 8 to 9. Let this paint the picture of who your God is. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're all sinners. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is the same God, the God of creation, Adam and Eve's God. This is the God of the Bible. He is a pursuing, forgiving God. If we confess, he says he forgives and he cleanses. So the quicker the confession, friends, the quicker the forgiveness. There is no more urgent time than right now in your life to surrender and confess and repent. If you've been around the church for a long time or just a short time, we often say today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to confess your sins, turn from your sin, and get right with your pursuing Lord. As Adam and Eve hid, don't hide. As Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves to try to cover up, friends, you cannot hide from God. He sees it all. No, God sees you right now. He knows your transgressions. He knows your very thoughts. You can't hide. Psalm 139, 7 to 8, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Right? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol and hell, you are there. You cannot hide from him. You cannot escape the eyes of God. Why are you trying to hide if you can't hide? So parents, children, grandparents, men, women, friends, anyone hearing my voice, no matter if you speak English, Spanish, Russian, or any other language, God cries out to you, where are you? Where are you right now with him? Are you running or are you hiding? 
Or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the answer to God is not, it's her, it's him. The answer is, it's me. Confess your sin. Repent before him. As God reveals himself later to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, again, this is a picture of the eternal character of God. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. If you don't repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone, if you don't confess your sin before the Lord and follow him all the days of your life, you will be an enemy of God. You will be eternally guilty. And that is a horrible, eternal, devastating place to be. Now, although the Lord is pursuing Adam and Eve, we see on their part that no confession is made. In fact, what we see here is just blame shifting, blaming each other, blaming the servant or serpent, and even blaming God. And so because of that, justice needs to be served. And so the question is, is are they going to die now? Is God going to bring the hammer down now? Well, friends, as God is a benevolent, gracious, and forgiving God, as we just read, he is also a just God, which leads to our second point today. That as we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. As we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. Friends, God has every right to judge our sin. Because he is God. As Satan was so rightly cast down from heaven by God to earth, as Satan was trying to ascend to God's throne... God was just in casting him down, right? Satan had no right and no place to make himself like God, to make himself like his creator. And so God also reveals that same justice in this new universe he just created. And as Adam and Eve had just one command to keep, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And as God so clearly revealed that the consequence would surely be death for their disobedience, God must follow through with what he promised. Because, again, it's who he is. God is just. I mean, the rest of this book reveals nothing less than a just God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Or Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so we see God revealing his character of both love and justice. He is both. I mean, that that, that doesn't mean that he's 50-50, 50% Love and 50% justice. No, he's 100% both at all times. As God is so fully love, God is so fully just. And that as he loves and pursues, God also judges sin. 
And that the justice he had for Adam and Eve is the curse of death. And that curse of death would also permeate all of humanity and all of creation from that day forward. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so the curse of death has now come into the world, and Adam and Eve were probably expecting to be struck down instantly when God found them, but surprisingly, instead, what we see is that although God would have been perfectly just to do so in that moment, Instead, we see that the judgment, with the judgment of death, there is also mercy. That yes, as Adam and Eve will surely die, as God promised, death was not going to be an instant thing for them. No, in fact, we know by studying the Bible that they went on to live extremely long lives. In fact, in Genesis 5.5, it tells us, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. But then it also says what? It says, and he died. God's judgment is true, but what we see here is that it's also mercifully true. And so what we see next within the justice of God is that there is also the mercy of God. Again, more of himself being revealed that wouldn't have come to fruition apart from sin in the world. Sin and mercy go hand in hand. You can't have mercy without sin first. But God had this merciful quotient as, as a portion of his character in eternity past. So with the curse, there is blessing. And so as the scriptures go on to reveal how this curse of death now affects the whole world, what we see in verses 14 to 19 is that uh, there are three distinct ways that God both cursed and blessed the world because of sin. We're going to see this through the cursing of the serpent. We're going to see this through the cursing of the woman. And then we're going to also see this in the cursing of Adam. Now, because of the significance of every detail here, we're only really going to be looking at verses 14 to 15 for the rest of our sermon today. That's why this is only part one of the curse and blessing of the fall. You're going to get the rest uh, next week. But as God now doles out his rightful judgment, he starts with the serpent. He starts with the order that temptation came into the world, right? As God was very aware of who this serpent is, and as the rest of Scripture reveals that as in the judgment of God, he was cast down from heaven to earth even before the fall, what we see next is that God then casts him even further down because of his involvement in the fall. And so what we're going to see here in verses 14 to 15 is that the serpent's curse is our blessing. The serpent's curse is our blessing. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Well, as Satan was a former, former angel of God, and as he showed up in the form of a serpent here, much speculation has, has been made as to what maybe this physical change that's going on here uh, directly from the curse of God, right? As God commands the serpent to be cursed above all livestock and beasts of the field, he's now cursed to go on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. 
So some speculate that Satan showed up and that a serpent before the fall uh, might have been a, a creature that could stand or be on four appendages. But now because of the fall, those are taken away and he's slammed down to the earth. And you know what? Very much that could have been uh, a physical change for sure. Left only to slither around on the earth so that he was now physically the lowest of all creatures. I mean, when you think about it, what is lower than a serpent? What is lower than a snake? What is more despised about all the animals in the world? Often, often a snake is the most despised. So whether that's a part of the physical curse, I don't have a problem with that. But we have to understand that more than anything, there is imagery going on here. And this imagery says so much more. That as Satan's desire in heaven was to try to take the place of God, and then as he came down and he tried to tempt us to take the place of God, God now curses him down to the lowest of all positions of living things. Friends, what's going on here is the ultimate purpose of humiliation for the serpent. Humiliation as he's now to be regarded as lower than any animal Right, Once an angel in the realms of glory, now a despised, belly-crawling, sand-eating lowlife. In fact, as the text goes on to say, it says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. It also speaks about a hostility between those who are created in the image of God, right, the offspring of the woman, and those who follow this slithering, despised path of the snake. So not only has Satan made enemies in heaven and fell to earth, now he is the primary hated enemy of God's image bearers themselves. Now friends, and I know you parents will teach your kids that it's not good to hate anyone. And that's very true and right. Unless it comes to Satan and his demons. As scripture calls us to love our enemies and to pray for them, when it comes to Satan and his demons and all evil, there is no love. No, for Satan and his demons, there must only be hate. Because everything they're all about is anti-God. They hate God. They try to tear down God at every turn. And they try to tear down the image bearers of God at every turn as well, especially those who are in Jesus Christ, the church. So friends, when it comes to Satan and his demons, there's no room in your life or your thoughts to have any kind of compassion towards him. There's no room in your life for the tempting whispers. Don't let him crawl into the garden of your thoughts. Don't tolerate Satan and evil. Don't toy around with it. No, the scriptures say here that there ought to be enmity between the woman's seed and Satan's seed. Friends, enmity is a mutual hatred and hostility. As he hates us, it's mutual, friends. Romans 12 says, right? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Right? Who he is and what he is about and what he's propagating in this world, all evil is to be despised. Psalm 97, 10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. 
So we must despise everything about Satan and all evil. We need to stay clear of the tempting whispers at all costs. In fact, as the text goes on then to say, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the he that God is talking about here is the offspring of the woman who in enmity and justice is going to ultimately stomp on the serpent's head. Right As the serpent is going to try to bite and bruise his heel, he is going to bruise his head. It's a death blow. So just think about it for a moment. Think about your natural reaction that you would have. Let's say you're out by Drumheller, you're hiking in the hoodoos, where there is actually prairie rattlesnakes. Yes, we have poisonous rattlesnakes here in Alberta. So if you're walking along the hoodoos unsuspectingly or, or if your child is walking next to you and all of a sudden a rattlesnake jumps out and strikes your heel and latches on, what are you going to do with the other foot? Right? You're going to stomp on the head of that serpent and you're going to stomp on the head of that serpent until it's dead. And much more so if it was on your child's foot. Just think about how fast you're going to turn around. You're going to take that other foot, or you're going to take a stone, or you're going to take anything, and you're going to crush the head of that serpent over and over and over again. Right? It's not going to be just a gentle kick. It's going to be a death blow. In that moment, you're not going to be worried about if this is the last snake of the species. You're not going to worry about trying to spare its life. You're going to do everything you can to try and kill it. Because you know that as a rattlesnake's bite, bite is poisonous, that it could cost you or your child's very life. And so the judgment for the serpent is absolute humility, hostility, and mortality. His days are numbered. And friends, as you study your Bible from the front to the back, what you're going to see over and over again is all of this playing out towards evil. As the Bible weaves imagery of crushed heads trampling enemies, the eating of dust, the striking of serpents, we see that the curse towards the serpent is ongoing. It's a hostile narrative that's being played out between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And as we think about the original audience hearing this for the first time, the people of Israel heading out into the promised land, they needed to be prepared. They were going to have to engage in hostility towards evil. We often see this head-crushing imagery being used between God's people and their enemies. As the Israelites were about to enter the land of Canaan, when Joshua and the Israelites were at war with the offspring of Satan in their land, Joshua himself instructed his people in Joshua 10, 24. <coughs> he said, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. This is that same imagery being woven through. When David struck down Goliath, what, what, what killed Goliath? It was a stone that crushed Goliath's forehead that brought this evil enemy down. When David worshipped God over his victorious uh, victory over his enemies in 2 Samuel twenty two thirty nine, 39, he writes, I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. Friends, the imagery of this bruising of the serpent's head is everywhere in Scripture. 
that as revelation and history is unfolding, it was all anticipating a great and final day when the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, will finally crush the head of Satan once for all. And so the seed of the woman is the line of those who choose to carry on in the promise of God or those who God chooses for them to follow him. This went all the way from Seth through Moses through Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David. All of these stories have seed language. And as it's right to speak of the seed of the woman as those of the promised seed, his true people, this seed language also speaks of something greater. In fact, this seed language speaks of someone greater. As the psalmist prophetically sings in Psalm 91.13 that we already read today, it sings about a person who's going to come and tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Who are we singing about? Right? What we see as God's word uh, beginning to unfold is that as much as it's about God's people, we see that this promise begins to narrow in on a particular person. It narrows in on a coming savior. It narrows in on a coming head crusher. In fact, in Genesis, as it says, he shall bruise your head, the language here is in the masculine singular. It's speaking about one. Even in the prophecy of Balaam's donkey, we see the Lord revealing a single saving warrior which will come to defend God's own people. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so all of this language and more throughout the Old Testament are like road signs, right? Telling God's people, telling God's people, you're almost there. He's almost here. It's telling us that God, God's Savior is almost here. The head crusher is on the way until the very perfect day and the perfect time when according to God's abundant grace and mercy as a virgin gives birth in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the ultimate seed of the woman has come. The ultimate head crusher of the serpent, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the warrior Messiah of God's people. He is the promised offspring who is at enmity with Satan. As Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Friends, all of the seed, offspring, head-bruising language in just the third chapter of the Bible, the very beginning is speaking already about Jesus Christ. It's speaking about our Savior. That as quickly as Adam and Eve so tragically eat of the fruit, God was already so valiantly revealing his plan to save them his plan to save the world. That in the cursing of the serpent, there is such blessing, eternal blessing, that one is coming, that he was coming, the one who Satan would try to strike, right? Who Satan ultimately hated, who Satan would try to tempt in the desert, who Satan would try to bruise his heel. As Satan went to Jesus with the most calculated attacks, 
But then Christ would turn around and he would stomp and he would bruise and he would crush the very head of Satan. And he did this through his perfect life lived, his sacrificial death given, and his resurrection from the grave, conquering Satan, conquering sin, conquering death once and for all. Friends, Genesis 3, 1, 15 is the very first gospel allusion in the scripture. It's what we call the proto-evangelion. It's the first gospel that in the midst of such tragic cosmic treason, in the midst of Adam and Eve's shame and despair and blame shifting and sin, that there is hope for them to believe in. That in the midst of such darkness and judgment and separation from God that we're going to learn about next week, that God had the saving plan. And all they needed to do was to repent of their sins and to trust that he shall bruise the serpent's head. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that saves. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which we are the foremost. Friends, we cannot save ourselves. That's why God had to send the head crusher of Satan. That's why he had to send himself. He had to send his son to make his enemy his footstool. In our guilt, the Lord rightfully judges. But with the judgment, God reveals the mercy to save. This is the blessing that comes along with the curse. Next week, we're going to carry on with the cursing of the woman and the cursing of man in part two which again is so ripe with the gospel. But for now, as we close out this Sunday, I need to ask you, do you believe? Do you believe in all of this? Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of saving? Do you believe that you fall short of the glory of God? That like Adam and Eve, you're prone to eating of the forbidden fruit, to giving yourself to sin, even when you know it's wrong. Are you worried about your eternity in light of your sin? That as God promised death for sin, death is knocking on your door every day. Are you wondering, am I ready? Am I going to make it? Am I going to be okay when the end comes? Well, the friends... The answer to that is, apart from Christ, you're not going to be okay. The beauty of it all is that God sent the Satan head crusher for you. He is eternal life for our eternal death. There is a lake of fire that's prepared for Satan and his demons and his offspring in the end. Apart from Christ, you have no hope No, the answer, friends, is not to try harder. It's not to do better. It's not to be good. No, the answer is found in only one, and it's found in turning from Satan and turning from this world and turning to Jesus Christ. Repent and believe today. Friends, if you believe that, you will not surely die. If you're in Christ, you will not surely die. I'm going to close with what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 26. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in order, or his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we get to open your word and to see what you have revealed to us from the very beginning. That in our sin, you pursued us. That in our sin, you cried out, where are you? And as our parents before us, Adam and Eve, hid and concealed and tried to cover themselves up, we, just, we see ourselves, God. We see our propensity to do the same. But Lord, we're so thankful that even in all of that, you pursued us and that you promised to send the Satan head crusher. You promised to send your son, Jesus Christ, the one who came to live for us, the one who came to die the death that we deserved, the one who suffered the wrath of God upon himself for the sins of the world, but the one who also rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death and Satan forevermore. We, we worship you, God. We thank you that your plan is true, that we cannot save ourselves. We thank you that you, get to, you grant us repentance and faith. We pray that you would grant godly sorrow over our sin. Godly sorrow that leads to salvation without regret. You are good, God. We praise you for what you have planned and what you have revealed from the very beginning. Do your work on our hearts. Maybe there's somebody here in, in this service today who doesn't know you. We pray that you would, uh, by your grace, grant them repentance and faith that you would give them a heart of flesh so that they could believe. We also pray that if there's others who are suffering uh, in silence or, or, or suffering from sin, that this would be a day of renewal, a day that they would remember um, the depths of our sin and the consequences of sin, but that you are faithful to pursue and to save, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we trust you by your spirit, by your word, to do your work. And we pray that now as we sing again, that you would receive all the praise that is due your name. We pray this in Christ's name.